Thank you for joining us for another episode of Code Concepts with myself, Rachel Patterson, and Pete Roquet. Today, we are diving into receiverships part two, and I'm so excited. We have the director of city receiverships for Jones and Mayer, the lovely Miss Amanda Pope with us today. Thank you for joining us, Miss Amanda. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to get to talk about this really uh, particular remedy under the law. I think the pleasure is all ours. So take it away, Pete. So I had the pleasure of working with Amanda in in my previous stints, and Amanda is such a great attorney. I love Amanda. That's why she's on our show today. And um, she now is in charge of receiverships for the firm she's with. And I couldn't think of a better person to be in that position because she is very well versed on that particular topic. So before we dive into how much I love Amanda, we're going to let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. Well, thank you, Pete. Uh, The feeling is definitely mutual. Uh, Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Amanda Pope. As Rachel said, I'm the director of city receiverships at Jones and Mayer, which is a law firm in California. We have a Southern California office and a Northern California office, uh, but I direct the city receivership program all over the state of California. Uh, We work with municipalities, uh, other public agencies, but generally I work for cities in California to get receivers appointed. Uh, So I know that uh, Richardson Griswold was on your show last week. Great show. Loved it. Loved all the questions. I was, you know, from the audience, I'm raising my hand saying, I know, I know, (laughs) Um, because it's just a topic that I, I could talk about forever. So essentially what my role is, is I manage all stages of initiating a receivership litigation for a city. So sometimes that means working with the city, you know, at the very beginning, hey, we we have this property, we've been getting these complaints, this looks really bad. Do you think this will be a great receivership? Sometimes that means it's that property that's been, you know, the worst of the worst sitting on an officer's desk for a couple of years, or even one of those properties that has a 20-year history, right? Think those really bad hoarder properties um, where citations haven't worked, notices haven't worked, uh, sometimes even criminal prosecution hasn't worked. So our firm also does general code enforcement work. We have criminal prosecutors who do that uh, and work with cities to criminally prosecute. But I just handle the initiation of receiverships, which is under civil law here in California. And so I, you know, I can kind of talk about um, the process, uh, Pete. If you if you want me to get into my background or how I got into receiverships, I'm, you know, I'm all yours for the hour. Awesome. No, uh, normally we we like to get to know how you got into law first, and you know, a little bit uh, about how you discovered the whole municipal um, the municipal field, and then specifically on how you got involved with receiverships. We we like to tell the story about Amanda. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sure. Um, Yes. In law school, my favorite class was constitutional law. That was uh, my second year of law school. And my professor said, I I went to her one day and I said, I, this is what I want to do. This is my favorite area that we've studied so far. I find it fascinating. And even in undergrad, uh, it was one of my favorite subjects. I knew I was headed to law school. So I did the typical poli sci, you know, history classes, pre-law classes. And she said, if you really love it, you need to go work in a city. And um, the city of Riverside had an incredibly robust law clerk uh, legal intern program. Um, 
They had about two to three interns uh, working there at any given time. And so I got a job there uh, for class credit and fell in love with it immediately. Not just municipal law, but the city, the people. Uh, it was such a great first job. I got so much mentoring there. Still very close to a lot of people I worked with there. And they did receiverships. So they uh, had a code enforcement attorney who specialized in receiverships. And of course, as Red said last week, no one studies that in law school. No one's even heard of it. I still, there's people I went to law school with who think I'm a district attorney. They still don't understand exactly what it is. Um, and this was, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there when the foreclosure crisis was hitting hard and definitely hitting the Inland Empire in, here in California pretty hard. So we had no shortage of abandoned, vacant, distressed properties. So it was just a great training ground to kind of learn the remedy, learn how it worked, um, what did it really mean, what was, how do you take a case from start to finish, which is one of the, you know, very exciting things to do as a, as a law student turned lawyer. Um, and so I got a job there uh, after law school, which sounds very easy. But again, this was during the foreclosure crisis. So I graduated. I ended up having to work for free as a volunteer attorney for a while. But I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I just kept my foot in the door and kind of waited till they had an opening and uh, worked there for a couple of years. Uh, did other areas of municipal law and loved it. But uh, the receivership thing is so specialized and has kind of turned into my career. I never really thought it would. I've, I've been a lawyer for a little over 10 years and have specialized in health and safety code receiverships and other, you know, code enforcement issues, massage parlors and nuisance properties and things like that. But now as the director of receiverships, I get to manage an entire team uh, at my firm. And this is all we do. We just help, you know, abate substandard and blighted properties for all sorts of cities, all sorts of city sizes throughout California. Awesome. It was very awesome, Amanda. Thank you. Well, Ms. Pope, as I told you, I promised I wouldn't monopolize the hour with a bunch of questions, but I kind of have to start right in with my um, giant list of questions. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so what I would really like to know, I mean, your background is so amazing. Um, just looking you up and doing some research on you, uh, you just have such a great amount of knowledge and we're just super excited to get it out of your head. So the process building a case, you know, we as code enforcement officers, we know that the who, what, where, when, and how and the why is very important. So with a starting this process, what is it that you're looking for working with the code enforcement officer? Can you kind of talk about what that process looks like from start to finish um, and really mushing on the middles? Yes, uh, definitely. So when I get to court, when I'm, when I'm trying to get a receiver appointed, I need the best evidence possible. So even, you know, some cases it's simple, right? You go out, you get a complaint, you go out, you take a few photos, you write, you know, an administrative citation or notice, uh, or you send a letter uh, and the owner complies and that's it, right? It's an open and check case, one or two, you know, um, citations and, and you're done. Uh, if you think a property is going to be kind of one of your big cases, right? Start documenting everything immediately. Right. So the best cases for me that come directly from my clients are the clients that take really robust case notes using whatever you know system that your jurisdiction uses. Um, because for me, by the time it lands on my desk, that's a really nice case summary. Right. So sometimes it's, for example, let's take the you know kind of classic 
hoarder, non-compliant owner, right? You know, I like to see, I work backwards, right? So it's, it's nice for me to be like, oh, we got a, you know, a citizen complaint. Officer went out, made contact, and here's what was said, and here's what was observed, right? And here's the following violations. Even if it's just a bullet point list, right? Here's the 12 violations of our municipal code that we observed on the property. And then, of course, there's nothing better than photos, Right. And so I know there's lots of um, resources out there, lots of classes out there that talk about how do you build a case? How do you document a case? And the reason it's so important is because you don't know where it's going to land. Right. You don't know if it's going to come to me and be a receivership. Uh, You don't know if it's going to go to a city prosecutor and you're going to have the need someday in an appeal. What if it's just an administrative citation? Um, you know, at, at Riverside, we had this owner who any, he had about six or seven properties and any citation he would appeal. And every time he lost at the administrative level, which he almost certainly would, he would appeal to court, which, you know, it's a hundred dollar citation, but of course he has that due process right to appeal. Right. But we needed a a well-documented case of, well, yes, we went out and here's the nice, crisp, clean photos of the violations because the judge or the hearing officer is not going to go out to the property. Um, That has happened a few times (laughs) in some of my receivership cases where judges want to do site visits, but generally speaking, judges, are just looking at the file that's in front of them. So if you have blurry photos, if you have a picture that's just a picture of a wall, you know, you may know why you took that picture and why it's a violation, but a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And so we need the pictures to tell the story. And so what I really like to see is a um, consistent inspection process of, you know, we went out, we said we were gonna give them till, you know, X date to comply. We went out that day or the next day or a few days later. Here's the photo showing that the owner did not do what the owner said they were going to do. Um, you know, it's it's really at the end of the day, <clears throat> that's what we're relying on. Right. And so, uh, you know, you could take 100 photos, but maybe only 50 of them are going to need to tell the story. So I need those 50 photos, right? A photo of someone's boot is not helpful. Um, I always recommend don't have people in your photos if you can't, right? You don't want to create, you know, witnesses if you don't need to, right? And a picture of a a code enforcement officer's back is not helpful for a judge, (laughs) right? So kind of tell the story. And um, sometimes what I say is, you know, I think of it as almost as if you have a body camera on, right? As you're walking up to the property, you take a photo that's kind of your overall story, right? Like, oh, here's what the property looks like from the neighbors. This is why we keep getting phone calls, right? And then as you're walking through, it's like, okay, this is the front bedroom. Oh, look, I can't even see the window, right? And then you show that or, oh, look, there's mold in the ceiling. And you you shoot your camera up and you make sure it's in focus because a lot of times these houses are dark, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I've taught a few classes on this before where I say, make sure your camera battery is charged, Make sure if you date stamp your photos before we get out of the car, make sure it's the correct date stamp. All things we can get around, but, you know, if we have one shot to inspect a property, let's, let's get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and so, and, and same also keep copies of all your notices, right? So if you have a, a note in your system that says we issued a notice of violation on this date, I'm going to attach that eventually as an exhibit to what I send the judge. If you don't have a copy of that notice for me, or you don't have proof of what day that notice was issued, right? It's really hard to to kind of rest your case on what you've done if it's not well documented. 
So and again, not every case is going to end up in court or end up in an appeal or end up in a receivership. But if you treat every case as if it's going to, it's going to be always just be a very solid case and very well documented of what it is you're trying to do and why you need compliance. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. And it's interesting that you say that, Amanda, because um, when when folks do appeal, sometimes they're kind of hoping that the judge uh, takes it a little bit easier on them. And a lot of judge aren't, aren't judges aren't really educated on code enforcement. Mm-hmm. They're very educated on criminal criminal law or, mm-hmm. you know, certain type of other litigation. But code enforcement is such a niche uh, space where, like, you know, you're a niche uh, attorney. So, you know, it's such a, you know, um, I sat and educated judges with you. And, mm-hmm. and, and we had to explain why we were there, what we were doing. And, you know, a lot of times, like you said, it's so important. And I have taken your class at, you know, when, when it comes to documentation. And, and, you know, I can't tell you how important photographs are. And not only that, but being able to be consistent you know, not just all over the place. You're in the garage, and then you're in the kitchen, and then you're in the outside in the backyard, and you're back in the kitchen. Right, right. And if you know, if I'm having trouble understanding kind of what the violations are based on the photo, and this is what I do, right? I can look at a photo and you know name ten violations for you just looking at the photo. But if I'm having trouble, imagine what a judge who's never heard of code enforcement never understood a violation of the municipal law, imagine what trouble they're gonna have. And especially when you're getting to the level of a judge if you're asking them to take serious action based on your evidence, right? So an- another another thing that, um, that, that we always advocate now, I don't like taking things to the attorney. I, I just, you know, common practice, it's costly. I'm not saying that you're costly, but you know, you're worth every penny. <laughs> but you know when, when we do take it there you know i always recommend for officers to you know to to document like you said because to me if it did if i don't have a picture of it it didn't exist on that for me right. i always tell my, my guys um hey if if you don't have a picture of what you're claiming that inoperable vehicle mm-hmm. well where's the picture of the not what inoperable vehicle are you talking about you know and and then um not only that but you know when we bring stuff to you and say okay yeah it's an operable vehicle well what made it inoperable you know was mm-hmm. it what color was the vehicle you know because these these are questions that you know when sometimes in some jurisdictions uh, the judge has questions for the uh for for the uh, officer i've been in those situations where hey I, I was dragged into the courtroom and i had to say hey i swear i you know that i'm telling the truth and, you know, and that's in the purposes of getting like an inspection warrant in which it's just something that we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and I have to attest and then they'll ask the question, well, why'd you go over there? Well, we received a complaint. Well, where's the complaint? I'm like, well, it's an anonymous complaint or or we received it. Here's our uh, documentation. The judges say, OK, this is why you went out there. You're just not picking on this person because judges also tend to look at that thing uh, stuff, too. Exactly. And if it's an old case, let's say it's even just a year old. Does anyone remember exactly what they saw a year ago? And that's where documenting everything you're doing as you're doing it. You know, Pete, you bring up the example of like, well, what inoperable car? What if you say inoperable vehicle, but there's three vehicles on the driveway? Right. And right. right? And so um, you always think about it is if I have to present this case to someone who's not here, what's the most specific thing, the most detailed thing I can do to document why I did what I did? 
So when you are a municipality or a code enforcement officer has decided that we need to utilize a process, you know, are there, and say, you know, in my jurisdiction, we have blight hearings and, you know, administrative summonses and things of that nature. Um, but when we're looking at receiverships, Ms. Pope, are there properties that are sometimes not necessarily the best candidates for this process? And what are those? Yes, this actually just came up yesterday. Um, a client that I do several receiverships for a city here in Southern California. We've done um, a, a lot of strong receiverships together. Uh, they had initially sent me the case and I said, okay, let's work it up. So what I mean by that is I'm, I'm doing a two-part analysis. I'm doing a, does it meet the legal standard for receivership? So in California, as Red touched on last week, it's a statutory basis to get a receiver. It's under the health and safety code. There's some um, very specific legal requirements that you would have to meet to be a, uh, qualified. The property would have to qualify to request that a receiver be appointed. The second part of my analysis is, is it financially feasible to do a receivership? Uh, so as part of that, I work directly up front with the receiver I intend to nominate because he's the one who's going to have to be borrowing the money, right? Hiring the contractors, making it uh, work. But, you know, we can get them appointed. Like, yes, this property is substandard and substantially dangerous. It has, you know, 40 violations of law. You know, it's red tagged, it's whatever the problems are. Sure. Yeah, we'll get a receiver appointed. But if the receiver can't borrow money to rehab it or can't get it sold or can't do what he needs to do to effectuate permanent compliance and permanent abatement, mm -hmm. it's essentially, you know, I don't want to say useless remedy, but it's kind of not the best option for the city at that point. Okay. So in the case yesterday that my, my client sent me, uh, we had kind of done the workup, right? We ordered the necessary title reports and had determined who owned the property, were there liens on the property, and all they had were exterior photos. And it was bad. It's, you know, trash, drunk, debris. There was um, a horrible smell coming from the property. Um, but I said, okay, well, what's it look like inside? Oh, we're going to try and get consent. I said, okay, if you get consent, great. If you don't, let me know. We'll get a warrant. Mm -hmm. So luckily they were able to get consent. Uh, they did a thorough interior property inspection, took several photos, sent me a list of all the observed violations of either the you know municipal code, building code, health and safety code, um, any other code that the city has adopted. And, and we talked it over and we looked it over and it just wasn't quite there for a receiver. Clearly the property has problems and has violations, but it doesn't rise to that level of like substantially dangerous, substandard building. Essentially, if they just cleared up the junk, trash and debris, they'd be great right? There were no building, plumbing, electrical. Now, again, those aren't required for receivership, but it just kind of was a, it was a nuisance property, but not quite to the level of getting a receiver appointed. And I knew the judge that this case would end up in front of, and I, I could see what would happen. And that's a lot. My job a lot of the times is to walk the client through like, okay, sure, we'll file receivership, but here's what we're really looking at. And I knew, I, I know this judge very well. It's exactly the kind of case where if they get help from a neighbor or a friend or a community member just to clear out the junk and they come to court by the time we have our hearing and they say, oh, look, we're making progress. This is this judge is going to be like, OK, great. I'll give you 60 more days or four more months or what do you need? And then before you know it, we kind of don't really have a need for a receiver or have a case. So I said, well, let's explore your other legal options. Right. Should we do an abatement warrant? 
Should we? And of course, there's an expense associated with that. And every city's different on whether they want to do that or not. Should How many notices have you issued? What do those notices look like? Is there another way we can get compliance from these owners short of going through the, you know, kind of longer, more expensive process of a receivership? Uh, so luckily, I was able to forward that file on to other attorneys in our firm who can help with more or help with other uh, code enforcement remedies for the client. You know, and it's hard because I'm a problem solver by nature. It's one of the reasons why I love what we do because there's a problem in the community. We apply the receivership process and now we've solved this problem, right? Some of the best before and after photos <laughs> you ever get to see, right? Um, and, and you've rendered it safe either for the occupants, uh, for a downstream owner. You've often relocated um, the occupants to safer housing, right? So it's, it's kind of a, a great solution. But I, I just looked at it and I thought this just isn't the right case. But there's other legal things. We could do a public nuisance case, right? Short of, of receivership, you know, it's not the end-all be-all remedy um, in every single case. You touched a little bit on um, like in inspection warrants and search warrants and obviously with other processes, you may or may not have to get that. When would be a time and kind of what is the difference between um, obtaining a search warrant versus obtaining an inspection warrant? Right. So um, I work, since I work exclusively with code enforcement, we do inspection warrants. We don't do search warrants. So search warrants are kind of what everyone generally knows, right? Mm -hmm. It's when... Sure. Uh, let's, let's say, for example, you know, uh, there's been a crime committed and the police need a search warrant to, you know, search a property for evidence of that crime, right? An inspection warrant is not under criminal law. It's actually a civil process. You apply to the court in the same way that you would with a search warrant. So we make an application to the court. We include a declaration or an affidavit from your code enforcement officer. The legal standard to get an inspection warrant is reason to believe. So I, the, the officers um, declare in their declaration that based on the violations you can observe from the public right of way, we have reason to believe that more serious violations of law exist, right? So if you have kind of like, you know, junk, trash, and debris piled up in the front yard and you see rotting um, splitting wood on the property, you know, you can kind of, I'm sure all your officers listening right now are picturing the kind of uh, property they have in their jurisdiction <laughs> that would meet this bill, right? right? You have to seek consent. You have to, um, this is all very, again, specific to California law um, because that's where I practice, but I'm sure many other states have similar laws on the books. In California, at least you have to prove that you sought consent and consent was denied. Okay. So we do that, you know, a number of different ways. Sometimes officers have a good rapport with the owner and they'll, oh, sure, yeah, come on in. Or um, sometimes it's, you know, uh, the owners are, you know, dead or missing or gone or we can't find them or they're just uh, not willing to comply. You know, so we'll send a letter, we'll send an email, we'll post it on the property. You know, hey, give us consent by this date, this time. And if you don't, we may seek a warrant. Sure. Um, and, and so, yeah, so you basically, you would attach photos, you would attach your history of prosecution. Look, we've sent notices, no one's complied. Here's what's going on in the property. We have reason to believe that substandard life safety risk violations exist in this property. And therefore we need a warrant to get inside to inspect. We're not searching. We're not, we're not taking evidence. We're not going to go into someone's home. 
right? And then remove items from their home. We are simply asking the court for authority to go in and inspect the property. And what that means, boots on the ground, is we go in, um, you know, when we when we execute a warrant, we go in, police officers come with us, they're covered under the warrant to maintain peace and keep safety, right? So I've never been in a building that a police officer hasn't cleared first. So I send police officers in to clear the building. And then depending on the property, you have whoever you need there. And what I always tell cities is this is your chance to get inside. This is your chance to get the evidence, your one chance to get the evidence you need, right? Which is what I talked about in the beginning, why it's so important to build that case. So uh, we go in with code. We'll go in with fire inspectors, building inspectors. Sometimes we have animal control there if we believe they're necessary, um, special environmental services, depending on the facts of the case. Um, and then quite often I will be there as well, again, depending on the facts of the case. Uh, and then we go in and we just, we take pictures and we get the evidence that we need. And then we take that you know back and start building a receivership case. Uh, generally, by that point, we know we're, we're headed to receivership, but you can also use a warrant just to get inside and just to get that evidence that you need, right? And then sometimes jurisdictions will, will take that and criminally prosecute or take that just to issue a warning letter or a citation. Um, it's just, you know, a, a fact gathering tool. It's a way to obtain the evidence you need to determine what action your, your city or your county is going to take to obtain compliance. And in my case, that means we we move forward with trying to get a receiver appointed. Makes sense. Thank you for that. So we oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say we've got a friend in the audience, audience, Miss Lovely Cece. Good morning, Cece. Um, but she had a question for you, Miss Pope. So she'd okay. like to know if you can speak on injunctive, injunction, injunctive, if I can speak today, um, relief and how that may be of help specifically for multiple properties in a substandard state under the same ownership. That's interesting. Yes, that's definitely um, an option. So uh, you could file in California, at least what's known as a public nuisance case. So again, that's um, civil law. That's you're filing a civil lawsuit. You're not in criminal court. You're in civil court. You're filing a civil nuisance case. And, and what you're essentially pleading with the court is that this property is, you know, um, a public nuisance. Right. And uh, you, you build up same thing, all your evidence. Here's all the photos. Here's everything. Here's a declaration from our code enforcement officer saying everything we've done. And then what you say is what we want is an injunction. So an injunction essentially is a court order telling you to stop doing something or making you do something. So in a case of code enforcement, what that injunction is, is essentially the court order is saying your property is in violation of the law and we are ordering you to stop doing that. We're ordering you to stop maintaining your property in violation of the following laws. So, you know, you're violating it because you have illegal construction. You're violating it for inoperable vehicles, trash, junk, debris, whatever your violations are. That's spelled out in the injunction. There's um, two parts generally, usually, to an injunction case where you're getting like a preliminary injunction and then a permanent injunction. So think of a preliminary injunction as kind of like your your intermediary order, right? Like we're not, we're two years away from, from the end of this case, but this property is so bad and so substandard that we need a preliminary injunction in place to tell the owner to stop doing these things. Um, when owners violate an injunction order, they can actually be held in contempt of court or what you can do is get a receiver appointed to enforce the order. 
So that is an option if you don't necessarily meet the standards under the health and safety code to get a receiver appointed. Because in that case, what you're doing, and this is kind of all very technical on the lawyer end of it. But in that case, what you're doing is you're asking a court to appoint a receiver just to enforce the order, not necessarily for health and specific health and safety code violations under which we would get a receiver appointed generally with like a petition. So um, I've actually, I've done this in cases before where, well, we don't really meet the standard for receivership, but the property's still a public nuisance. What are we gonna do here? So it's a, it's a longer way, um, sometimes more expensive because it opens you up to discovery. And what that means is everyone can exchange um, documents, photos, you can take depositions, right? So you can uh, have your code officer forced to sit in a conference room where the other side's attorney asks you questions about your case. Um, and then it just works its way through the courts in a different process than receiverships. The way I run my receivership program is by petition. Whereas when you're doing a civil nuisance case, that's by complaint. And again, that's boring lawyers speak for just how you start the case in court, right? So petitions, health and safety code, the legislature here in California intended health and safety code receiverships to be an expedited process. And one way we make that happen is we file a petition with the court. Um, and so that just kind of compresses the timeline generally for getting a receiver appointed. Um, so that's a long way of saying, yes, injunctions are a great um, legal remedy and a legal tool available. But I would say if you've you know, worked with your city attorney and the property meets the standard for a receivership under the health and safety code, I would go that route. It's, you know, it's faster, it's often more cost effective, and it's going to get you a result of you know, rehabilitating that property or getting that property sold a lot quicker. Makes sense. And it, we did have Jennifer Morris uh, come in, and it, I know we focused mostly on substandard properties last week, but there's also other types of receiverships. One was um, injunctions. One, one was for the illegal cannabis industry. Like sometimes that happens, and you know, there's a court appointed receiver. You can get a court appointed receiver on on um, on some of those. Um, there's other types of receiverships. Is it, do, do you deal with other types of receiverships other than the substandard uh, property ones? I don't, but there are. So there's like rents and profits receivers, which a lot of times um, that that's what other lawyers have heard of. Um, so say you have a business that's trying to wind up or a business dispute between business owners. A lot of times one of the receivers I work with, he does that as well. Right. So he'll do health and safety code receiverships, but he also does helps. He kind of takes custody and control of a business. Uh, he's done it in restaurants, right, where a, a restaurant's shutting down and now they need to, like, distribute the assets. Um, I, you know, Red kind of touched on this last week where they are a receiver is essentially just a court-appointed neutral who takes custody and control of whatever asset is in dispute. So in our case, it's, it is very limited to substandard properties, health and safety code violations of real property, um, but but receivers can be used in other legal contexts. Uh, I don't do that because I specialize in helping cities with these you know these properties. But that is um, a different area of receivership law under different statutes. That's awesome. I mean, it, it's. It's funny, like getting to know you and all these different types of legal remedies. We're like, and we thought we had a tool belt. <laughs> you guys have a tool belt. 
And, and it's right. and it's funny that you always constantly have to. Um, I, I think these forums are good for people that never understood the concept or maybe heard of it but didn't really get the whole gist of uh, what it is. And and to me, it's so important to get this information out. Um, we had another question. Let me see. Okay, injunctive relief. Okay, now when it comes to our receivership, so you know from the attorney side, once a receivership is actually granted, mm-hmm. okay, what's your role once the, you know, with cities to help that property monitor the cleanup uh, with the receiver? So what's your process? That That's a great question. The majority of my work is done up to getting the receiver appointed. So I'm working hand in hand with cities with let's get that warrant. Let's build up the case. We need to issue a notice to abate which is, again, in California, that's a statutory requirement. It's going to list out all the violations that need to be corrected. We have to give the owners a reasonable time uh, to correct. And, of course, we can discuss what what that means case by case. We have to post that, issue that. We record that on title. Then there's another statutory notice we have to give that's um, called a notice of intent. And we have to uh, post and mail and and get that out three days before we want to file the lawsuit. And then we file the lawsuit and then we get a hearing and then the receiver's appointed. So there's a lot of um, prep work, if you will, done by the uh, receivership attorneys. Once the receiver's appointed, I'm still involved, but it's a, it's a much smaller role. So the receiver is then in possession of control of the property. Um, the way I run it is I'm perfectly comfortable with the receivers communicating directly with staff. Um, and so uh, Red was on last week. I, I use him on some of my cases. He will uh, immediately, you know, file his oath bond. Uh, we get that appointment order recorded. And then Red and his team are immediately emailing city staff. I make that introduction, emailing city staff. Hey, we want to get out there. And, you know, we have one right now where, you know, it was only a matter of days. And Red says, like, to my to my client, okay, let's let's get out there. We want to take control. It's a red tagged, abandoned, somewhat hoarder property. So there's an immediate need for red to get out there and do something. And then you know the receiver is running the show. The receiver is communicating directly with the court, all the parties, the city included. The receiver is the one making orders of the court. So the receiver saying, hey, you know, I need to borrow X more dollars to, you know, fund a rehab bid or here's my rehab plan for the property. So my role essentially is representing the city's interest through that entire process. So we have a lot of status hearings. Uh, the receiver may need to bring motions uh, before the court. And I'm again, advocating and representing the city's position during that entire process. Uh, so yes, we agree with what the receiver wants to do or, oh no, the city objects to this particular, you know, uh, request because uh, generally that's a very, you know, collaborative, straightforward process. And then depending on what the court has ordered, the next big thing that that I would do is, as the receivership attorney is request cost recovery for the city. Sometimes in our appointment orders, that's just paid directly out of the receivership estate. That just involves me sending a letter to the receiver. He presents that to the court and then we get paid. Some judges say, no, I'm going to want to see a full cost recovery motion. So uh, my team will draft that motion, will present the city's costs to the court, advocate hard for the city's costs and what they are, why we're entitled to get those back. 
Um, and then the receiver does what he does. He's going to get discharged. He's either you know going to sell the property, whatever he's going to do. And we kind of wrap up the um, technicalities, for lack of a better word, of getting the liens off title that we've recorded, dismissing whatever parties we need to do. I will negotiate um, throughout the case if needed, but generally up front, I'm negotiating with the attorneys for the bank. I'm negoti- Sometimes I'm negotiating, I heard this on the program last week, sometimes I'm on the phone with the IRS, I'm negotiating those liens up front. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the attorneys that represent HUD to talk about what we're going to do about their loans. Um, I'm dealing with the property owner attorneys, uh, which is probably one of the most valuable things I can do because sometimes um, I know we're talking about getting receivers appointed and what we do with receivers. But one thing I really wanted to talk about during this program is what are the, the options that we could still do short of receivership? And I do that a lot where, um, for example, the owner, I just had this happen in a city where uh, the owner had died and the successor trustee was like, look, I, I don't want this property, but I, you know, what we're, I, I don't want a receiver appointed, right? Because that's going to eat into what value is left in the property. What can we do? We just want to sell the property. So I said, okay, well, bring me your buyer and I'll talk with your buyer. And their buyer was clearly qualified, um, was a real estate, you know, flipper, for lack of a better term. Uh, And so we just did a compliance agreement. I just said, okay, look, we've got, you know, three months till we even get to the receivership appointment hearing. If this person can can get the city what it wants, right? The city wants compliance. And if it's going to be faster to let the owner sell it to this flipper, we did a compliance agreement. We obviously protected the city's interest throughout that agreement. We got full cost recovery through the sale. So the city got its cost recovery back and the uh, owner was able to walk away with more money than they would have. And the developer is already on site. He's already cleaned out the property, right? He's um, eliminated the conditions that had led to the red tag and he's already applied for permits. And that'll happen within, you know, maybe a week of escrow closing. And which is, which is great for the city and our appointment hearing, you know, had I kept the case and fought them and been like, no, forget you. We're going to get a receiver appointed. I don't want anything to do with you. The receiver appointment hearing isn't for like still for a couple of weeks. So we'd still just be sitting here with this abandoned, vacant, red tagged property with no remedy. So, so what I always like to say to my cities is we can use the receivership process knowing that we may not even end up with the receiver appointed, we do also a lot of stipulations where once we're in litigation, um, we do a stipulation for stayed receiver. So at that point, you know, sometimes it takes being sued for owners to really wake up and understand, oh, wow, this is really serious. And so uh, sometimes, depending on the facts and depending, again, you know, on the city's my job is to represent the interest of the city. So if the city thinks it might be in the best interest to give someone more time to comply, to let someone sell the property themselves to someone who's going to do the work, we, we can do that. We can do a stipulation part of the litigation. So that's still overseen by the court. Um, I've done stipulations where even after the receiver was appointed, um, the owner really was like, no, I really, really want to do the work. And the city was willing to let them do that. So we got the receiver, his cost back. We got the city all their costs back. And now the owner is able to essentially make sure they keep the property and they're able to do the work. But if they fail to do that work and they fail to meet any of the deadlines set by the city, the receiver automatically steps in. 
And, and I think it's important and, and it's beautiful because I love that word compliance agreement. It, it has never failed me to date and, and, right. and I'll explain why. So, um, you know, one thing to, you know, kind of circle back a little bit, it's important for a code officer who's hearing this because we're talking more of the legalese portion of it, which, you know, a lot of our code enforcement officers don't deal in, 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 in it. And then at that point, a uh, uh, qualified uh you know, civil litigator will step in and do all that stuff. But number one thing to note is, you know, when you are getting an inspection warrant to um, advise the people, like if you don't get consent, you know, uh, an inspection warrant is a possibility and explain to them what that means. You know, uh, secondly, you know, when you are planning to take something to receivership, explain what a receivership is to the, because a lot of property owners, you're like, Oh, I'm going to take you, you know, I'm going to do we're going to have to file a receivership. And they're like, Okay, do whatever, but they don't understand what that means. Right. And the repercussions. And number third, when you are in a receivership and you talk about the compliance agreement, at that time, they're kind of like, oh, snap, I'm in a big, this is a big deal. Right. Oh, you mean it. (laughs) You you know? Yeah. So they realize that they have to take immediate and swift action. You know, one of the, you know, one of the things um, that we talk about is, you know, getting that resolution a little bit faster because those compliance agreements, you give them deadlines. And say, okay, I need this done by this date, you know, or I need this, you know, and and we talk about cost recovery. One of one of the things that I recommend for anybody, especially when you're a seasoned code officer, you just kind of know when something's going to end up in and that, you know, you just know. Um, and you know, I'm not going to take a, a you know a overgrown vegetation case to a receivership. But number one, it's probably not going to qualify. Number two, I'm just kind of spinning my wheels. But we're talking about those dilapidated, long term. Um, properties and you know so i think with those properties starting from the get-go starting that cost recovery um you know how how much time you're actually spending out there the police officers fire anybody that has to go to that property and deal with that you know once we start you know we start doing all that action talking to the um you know the attorney time that we're spending uh, that stuff gets documented you know if you do cdbg record uh, reporting and you know mm-hmm. how minute by minute you have to do that kind of um tracking it's important to do that because if if your state allows you to do uh, some sort of cost recovery some of the, you know it's it's unfair for you know for all the taxpayers to burden for that particular property and i always tell people you know it's not that we're you know um going after them for you know Code enforcement is not make about raising revenue. It's about, you know, keeping, you know, ma- making the, the neighborhood better. And a lot of times we shouldn't punish all the other taxpayers for constant calls for service of that one particular property. Mm-hmm. And I think when people understand that, that's why we do some of this tracking to recoup some of the costs for those taxpayers. I, yes, Pete, I think that's a really good point. Um, a lot of times um, cities aren't aware that if it heads to receivership, they can get their costs back. We have to be able to document and prove those costs. So I love nothing more when I say to a client like, okay, we're getting to the cost recovery stage, send me your costs. And it's this, you know, spreadsheet. Uh, Yeah, which is great because I can (laughs) barely work Excel myself, but it's great because it's, um, you know, it's on this date, this officer went out, inspected the property. They spent X amount of time. Here's the burdened rate. And so, you know, it's this much money. And it, it makes it so easy if I have to defend that to um, the receiver, if I have to defend that to the court, I can say, yes, we've had 300 calls for service. Look how much time that took police department. It took them away 
from other things that they needed to do, right? Other issues that were happening in the city. And this property just became a blight and a drain on public resources. Another great thing is, you know, if you hire a locksmith, if you hire um, anyone to come board up the property right now, board up costs are insane because lumber, uh, it's gotten a little better, but you know, lumber. So, you know, I'm seeing board up invoices for like seven, eight grand. That's all money that the city had to pay the board up contractor. If they didn't have public works come out and do it themselves, keep that invoice, right? We have a few properties where we've had to have someone come remove a beehive from the property. That's $200, but that's $200 that you're entitled to get back. So keep that invoice. And so at the end of the day, what I say is we don't want you to have to recreate your time three years down the road, right? Because that, first of all, it's a lot of time and work on your end. And it's really hard for everyone to remember what they did. But if you're tracking your time as you go, maybe not on every case, but on that case that you think, hey, this this is bad. This is going to be headed past my, my typical, you know, letter or notice or one citation. Start tracking that time. Because you may be able, again, and that's, you know, every state, every jurisdiction may be different. Another thing that I was thinking about after I watched uh, the episode last week from Red was what's something I could say to, to all your officers listening who aren't in California? And I think it's if your jurisdiction, your state law, your municipality, whatever, your government code, whatever it is, if there's any way you can record any of your notices on title, assuming they meet the legal standard and that's necessary or useful or helpful, that has been an incredibly effective tool in California. We record what we can either as a notice of pendency or a Liz pendants. And again, you know, you can't just record every notice or everything, but there are times when we can record certain notices and that is giving the city the leverage it needs either for cost recovery or to ensure a compliance agreement. So on that case I talked about where we stopped short of receivership to allow the owner to sell it to the developer, uh, part of their escrow obviously was, well, the city has two liens on title. How do we get those off title? So I said, well, as long as cost recovery is paid, as part of that compliance agreement. And this compliance agreement is signed by the new buyer and they say, oh yeah, we'll, we'll have it done in four months or whatever the timeline was, then I'm gonna remove those liens. And then what I did immediately after the new owner took title is I re-recorded our notice on title because the property is still substandard, it's still not in compliance. And if they try and turn around and sell it again, the city now has nothing on title. So they're a downstream unsuspecting buyer is going to have no idea that there's all these code enforcement violations, right? Now, again, that there's laws in California that allow us to do that. That makes sense to do that. But, you know, that may be something if you're not using in your jurisdiction, that could be something really useful. Um, special assessments, um, again, those are very specific uh, here in California, but that may be something that's available. You know, does your jurisdiction allow you to put unpaid citations on the property tax rolls? You know, what can you do to really kind of enforce compliance, get the city all of its costs back and quite frankly, give the city the leverage it needs to finally get compliance when someone wakes up and tries to do something with the property? No, that makes absolute sense. You know, you talk about the the usefulness of it, but to you know, someone in another jurisdiction or another state, what are the benefits? Um, I, in my jurisdiction, I have what we call a blight process. Okay. Blighted rehabilitation code where we bring cases 
before a blight hearing officer, um, we submit evidence, we do everything just as, as we would in a receivership case, but we ultimately then gain an order, um, which allows us to move in on that property and abate the nuisances and then file that lien if they don't pay that. So sure. what are the, the differences in the benefits of having a process like that versus utilizing a process such as receiverships? Well, I would say that the major difference is uh, maybe the timing, right? Okay. How quick is that process? Because what we can do in receivership is we can go in what's called, at least in California, called ex party. Okay. So we could go in, uh, the standard on an ex party is that the city is going to suffer irreparable harm if we don't get a receiver appointed immediately. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, obviously that's going to be case specific, fact specific, but if we can get a notice issued, here's all your violations, here's everything that's going on. We can get that, you know, the petition filed to get a receiver appointed in a matter of days after that. And then we're in court on a emergency. Think of it as like an emergency appointment order, right? Okay. Emergency is a very strong word. It's not quite the statutory language, but you're, you're saying to the judge, this is so bad. You know, it's it's burned out. It's falling down. It's become, you know, a, a haven for drugs and crime and homeless people or, you know, people are endangered by there's people living in this property. Right. It's been red tagged. You know, they're still living there. Whatever the facts are, uh, you can go in and get an emergency appointment order. And I, over uh, the last few years, have been crafting kind of really creative orders of saying generally our appointment orders the, the order that the judge signs to put the receiver in place, they're very long, you know, 12 plus pages, right? Because there's a lot of legal requirements and technicalities that the receiver needs to be able to borrow the funding and, and, and relocate occupants and, you know, collect rents and, you know, um, kind of other, other provisions that we need. But a lot of times, and, and we're talking about the city's cost recovery in that order. A lot of times what I'll say is, let's just get the receiver appointed immediately. The receiver can go out secure the property, vacate the, the occupants, do kind of the most substandard, deal with the most substandard problems, right? So um, one of the properties uh, I had, you know, we, it was a vacant and abandoned property. The owners actually had left the country. So no one was taking care of this property. And there was um, a crime committed in the property. Uh, there was, you know, essentially, you know, burglars had come in and were ransacking the property. A neighbor went over to find out what was happening. And the neighbor got held at gunpoint and beat up by these people. So, so we said, Okay, obviously, you know, there's other problems. It's red tagged, it's abandoned. We've got a deck on the back, structurally unsound. We had other reasons to get a receiver appointed, but that had kind of led to, but we need someone to do something immediately beyond what the city can do with its own enforcement powers. So the judge agreed. The judge said, yes, let's get the receiver in there right away just to address that immediate problem. And then the receiver can come back do an inventory report back to me. And then we can kind of talk about, are we going to do a full rehab? You know, is the city's cost recovery going to be, you know, part of the receivership order? Are we going to do a motion? I kind of said, we care about that, but we don't care about that as much as we care about making this safe for these poor neighbors in this poor neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of do an incremental approach. Mm -hmm. So while it might not be as fast overall, because the overall receivership may take, you know, a little over a year, whatever it's going to take, uh, you have stronger 
you have a court order in hand, right? And you can have a strong or a kind of middle of the road or full-blown appointment order. Sometimes I've gone in and said to the judge, we just want you to appoint a receiver to take immediate possession and control and, you know, render it safe, only deal with these limited facts and report back to the court. And I've had one or at least two judges say, oh, no, no, like I'm going to give you your full appointment order right now. And I didn't think that would be happening for at least another, you know, month until the hearing. So it kind of is just it's a stronger, uh, sometimes faster, more effective tool to give a city the power it needs. And quite frankly, it takes the burden off code enforcement. Once a receiver's in possession and control, you finally have someone you can call when there's a problem. Uh, it's, it's something as small as, you know, uh, well, the property's vacant, boarded up and secured, but hey, look, the grass, you know, is becoming a problem and we're getting calls. Right. Well, the owner was never going to take care of that. But now you have a receiver who can send a landscaper out and take care of it, you know, within a day. So the Very city good. finally has someone taking responsibility and taking charge of the property. Because clearly, by the time you've gotten to get a receiver appointed, the owner or whoever is in charge of the property is not going to be doing it themselves. Right. And it takes away the burden of, like, your process sounds really effective, but it takes away the burden from the city having to, okay, now we have this order. Now we're going to go do nuisance abatement. Mm -hmm. We need to pay for X, Y, and Z. We need to line up code and fire and police and, you know. Correct. You know, I've had to arrange inspection warrants with, you know, three or four people. And it it's really hard to yeah, sometimes find a day at a time that works for everyone, right? Right. So you're kind of putting that um, burden, for lack of a better word, onto the, the receiver, who is going to obviously want to also get it done because he's uh, or she is being overseen by the judge. Okay. Right. So okay. every step of the way in the receivership, they have to report back to the court. They have to get court authority um, to do what they need to do. And the receiver also has the authority to go back in ex party. So if, uh, if um, the receiver's in possession and control and the facts change where, oh, no, I can't wait two months for a hearing on my funding order. I need funding yesterday so I can do what I need to do. The receiver can also go in ex party with the judge and get that what he needs or what she needs up front right away, as opposed to kind of waiting out the rest of the process. Long-term benefits. Oh, and, and one of the things that that's important, you know, to, to know, cause we're running out of time and it, it's so fast how it happens. Huh? I can't believe <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one, one of the things that, um, that I, you know, I always say your receiverships aren't your first remedy. There's always the last remedy. You, you try to avoid them because they're a lot of work, but mm -hmm. it does uh, tend to solve like long-term issues for a community. So that that's a great thing. The other thing is, we you know, we're very concerned about, um, uh, you know, safety for the neighborhood and any officers. So one of the things that, you know, that I find valuable is the receivership. The receiver can also file a letter of trespass, especially if the property is an, an attractive nuisance that has constant people, you know, uh, people, um, you know, doing drugs in there. I've seen, you know, I think you and I were at a house where, you know, a prostitute came out at a boarded, <laughs> at a boarded property. It was, it, it, you know, so you, you want those letters of trespass signed by the receiver because he, now he has the authority to, to issue those. So, you know, and, and it's important to, to, um, they're important just for officer safety and to avoid that attractive nuisance. You know, the, the more you get on that property, the more uh, the police can go out there and start, you know, uh, removing folks. They, um, you know, they, the, uh, 
the attractive nuisances or whatever you might say, to, you know, start saying, hey, this place is too hot. We're not going to go there. And, and it eliminates right. that problem. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it is a remedy of last resort. But what I and I love when property owner attorneys or bank attorneys try and argue that in court. And I say, I, I agree, Your Honor. I don't get called on every case. The city calls me on the worst of the worst, and I'm here because there is no other legal option to solve this problem for the community. So, yeah, Pete, you're absolutely right. Like I said, the receiver once appointed, it's like a, a sigh of relief for the cities because now they know like, oh, OK, now we can make things happen. We can get it remedied. We can get it sold. Right. We can take care of the owner who's been living in this horrific conditions. Sometimes these owners, as I'm sure no one is surprised to hear, are being taken advantage of. They're elderly, they're sick, and now they're being taken advantage of by family members, by squatters, um, you know, all, all sorts of different fact patterns where, you know, we're there to, to deal with a substandard building, right, a substandard property. But at the end of the day, we're making it a safer living situation for the occupants, sometimes the owner, and even the, the community at large. Thank you, Amanda, for all this useful information. And, you know, thank you and your firm, Jones and Mayer, for, you know, uh, having you on here. And I, I appreciate the uh, the, uh, the information. Uh, you and Red are awesome at what you guys do. I, I can't praise you guys enough, uh, you know. So uh, with that, uh, Rachel, do you have any closing comments or anything or I apologize for monopolizing your time. No, um, but again, just as what Pete said, the information was great. It's invaluable, especially to folks like myself or in other jurisdictions. Um, it gives us more tools in our tool belt to go to our um, municipal leaders and say, hey, look, we've heard of this process. We can see how this may benefit our municipality in this way, that way or otherwise. So I'm very grateful to have you on today and very happy to have met you. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think receiverships are, you know, a really effective remedy for cities to abate, you know, blight and, and deal with kind of the, like I said earlier, the worst of the worst properties. Right. So thank you for letting me share my excitement for what I do and uh, for the <laughs> remedy. And yeah, I, I really encourage, you know, if you're in California, you know, reach out to your city attorneys um, and, and see if this is something that can solve that problem that, nothing else has worked. And if you're outside California, like Rachel said, you know, see what laws you have on the books. Maybe you don't have, you know, a health and safety code receivership, but you can do a public nuisance or you can do some kind of other stronger abatement uh, to effectu effectuate permanent uh, compliance. Right, right. That's the goal. And if uh, if you happen to be at the California um, uh, conference this year, Amanda will be there and she will also be at the California League of Cities if you have any questions for her. Now, Amanda, is there anywhere where they can reach you if anybody has any questions? Uh, yes, we, uh, you know, our website, Jones Mayer, uh, is a great place to, to contact me. Um, you feel free to email me directly. My email address is aap at jones-mayer.com. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, I can also work with uh, cities in California that also have in-house city attorneys. I have some options there. If you're like, well, we don't need an attorney. We already have an attorney. Um, we, we do have options at our firm that could assist you with that process. We're very collaborative in just trying to find resolutions for cities to deal with these properties. That's awesome. 
Okay, and I'm gonna put your email in here real quick. Sorry, I had to, I had to get it because I know I always transcribe everything, and I get in, uh, Rachel's like, "Hey, you spelled that wrong." <laughs> I'm so, impressed you know how to do that. I definitely would not know how to do that. So <laughs> there it is. There's your email address. So and thank you to all of our audience members as well for all your great questions, Jennifer, CC. We really appreciate those as well. And Red was on here, and I, I guarantee you, Red was like, oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So, well, well, again, thank you for your time, and we appreciate, you know, giving us this information. Uh, you know, this is just general information for code officers uh, to know what's out there, you know. So, definitely. with that. Thanks um, for having me. This was so much fun. I, you know. Awesome. I and love this episode, code, so. <laughs> so this episode will be available on Apple, um, on Apple iTunes uh, podcast, also on Spotify and Google podcasts. And it'll be um, up in the um, code enforcement educators website under the uh, code concepts tab. And so we have that this this one and all the other uh, different webcasts. We have them on there for view and they're available for free anytime. OK. So well, thanks Thank for joining you. us for another episode of Code Concepts with Rachel and Pete, and we will see you next Friday.